This is a 77-year-old woman who three and a half years ago in January of 2003 underwent a splenic flexure mobilization colostomy with a low anterior section. She had a large bulky tumor in the pelvis that was node negative. There was near total obstruction of the lumen and the tumor was fixed to the pelvic sidewall. She was treated with six months of adjuvant chemotherapy with Roswell Park 5-FU leucovorin with concomitant radiation to the pelvis and after she recovered, her colostomy was reversed. A routine CAT scan a year and a half ago, April of 2005, showed an apparent metastatic lesion in the central portion of the right lobe of the liver and a second smaller lesion with only the larger lesion being pet avid. Her surgical oncologist took her to laparotomy with intraoperative ultrasound, proceeded with the radiofrequency ablation of the main lesion, and the second lesion appeared to be a cyst. Were you involved with that decision, incidentally? Well, the surgeon actually had ordered this scan, so the actual surgeon did this. We talked about it, but the surgeon did this. I certainly was not involved in the decision not to biopsy it, which bothered me, because I didn't understand why he didn't biopsy the lesion, but he didn't. What was her condition and general health? I mean, you're talking about a 77-year-old woman. This is a year and a half earlier, but she was totally asymptomatic. Normal function, lifestyle? Normal function, felt well. Okay. We discussed the option of additional chemotherapy, but as many of our patients do, she went back to New England for the summer and declined therapy. When she returned in October, she came back to see me and we ordered new studies. And at that time, CT scans and a PET scan showed a new lesion in the liver and several small lung nodules, which were new. She felt, again, totally well, had normal liver function tests and normal CA. Somehow, we performed two CT needle biopsies, both of which were negative. One of them, despite the fact that I called the radiologist, the problem was they biopsied the RFA lesion, which was of no value, and the second biopsy was negative. I was aware of a study that we have with Moffitt, since we have a relationship with them, doing biopsies and genetic testing on liver metastases. So I sent her to Moffitt to have the biopsy and to be enrolled on a trial. So a third liver biopsy was performed at Moffitt and was consistent with metastatic colon cancer. She was enrolled on a clinical trial using DNA microarray analysis of liver metastases from colon cancer and basically comparing an arenotecan regimen and an oxaliplatinum regimen. She was randomized to the arm containing Zelox of Aston. Because of her age greater than 70, the capsidabine dose was 650 rather than 850 per meter squared times 14 days. She's now had seven cycles as of July 10th. After four cycles, a restaging study showed improvement in her liver lesion, and she continues to do well and is tolerating wellness, mainly asymptomatic. So there are about 100 things we could talk about with this case. I was particularly fascinated by the trial, and I was curious where things are. And we see this in a lot of different tumors now, trying to look inside the tumor and get predictors of response. Charlie, can you talk a little bit about where that is right now in terms of colorectal cancer? Right. Well, I think the best effort right now is what ECOG is doing in terms of a large-scale effort where the tumors are being assessed for microsatellite instability as well as loss of chromosome 18Q, Microsatellite instability predicting a better outcome, 18Q loss predicting a worse outcome, so that patients who would be considered a good risk, this is obviously in stage 2 patients, who are a good risk, who have microsatellite unstable tumors and 18Q is intact, they get observed. Those that have microsatellite stable tumors and 18Q is lost then go into a chemotherapy randomization of Folfox plus or minus bevacizumab. And I think as a nice proof of principle of whether these sort of simple tumor assays might predict how we should deliver care. 
clearly that's just skimming the surface. I mean, these are very simple assays, and we recognize that there are far more alterations in these tumors. So looking at microarrays, other things, to try to get a more global picture of tumor biology, I think is a great idea. And I think, I don't know the details of the study at Moffitt, but I think in principle that's the way we should be going in terms of trying to predict who responds to therapy and how we should deliver therapy. And what would we look at in trying to predict, for example, who would respond to oxaliplatin or arena-tecan? Well, just to mention, you'll be meeting in a mile Neil Maripol, who is the study chair of an ECOG trial that's the only trial that's not using markers for prognosis, which is what the ECOG 5202 study does. It's not testing predictiveness. It's setting prognostic ability of these markers. Neil's study takes synthase, and people who have high TS levels are randomized to either a fluoropyrimidine or not which is IROX, and all the low TS level people get Fulfox as a standard of care. This is the only study that actually separates prognosis versus prediction. So there are some gene arrays for colon cancer, just like in breast cancer, that are very prognostic. But just as in breast cancer, we have to prove in colon that they also predict who is going to benefit from one specific therapy versus another. It might be true that some of the work that Heinz Lentz has done with ERCC and with oxaliplatin may prove that some patients are going to be more sensitive. For arenotecan, it's more toxicity-based. It's not necessarily tumoral-based, but it's toxicity-based based on polymorphisms of UGT1A1. So it may be a combination of both host and environment and in fact, the poster I did this year at ASCO had to do with capecitabine toxicity variability because it had been our collective impression here in America that capecitabine was harder to administer. And the European approach was that it was because we didn't know how to give it. So because I chaired a study of Zelox versus 5 fu leucovorin with 1,800 patients in stage 3 disease, part of my deal was that I could mandate subset analyses of toxicity if I wanted to. So we did do an analysis. We added all the patients from this database into the two advanced disease studies. And very clearly, America had much worse toxicity compared to the rest of the world in every single study. But that's also true of 5-FU. If you go back to the impact trials, and Carmen Allegra, who's the biochemist of our group, believes it has to do with folate that the high folate levels in America, where we all take folate, it's in our food, it's in the drinks we have on the table, whereas in Eastern Europe, for example, where folic acid levels are very low, they can chomp down capecitabine at doses that are astronomic. So I'll be discussing that more tomorrow, but I think this has a real implication about drug testing, is if we begin to do more and more drug testing in different parts of the world, how can we generalize both the efficacy and toxicity data backward to the U.S.? It's a notion that the FDA probably blanches over, frankly. Charlie, this woman received capecitabine with oxaliplatin as part of a study. How do you approach the decision of whether to combine capecitabine or 5-FU with, for example, oxaliplatin in the first-line metastatic setting off-protocol? My standard remains Folfox, as I mentioned earlier, and I'd like to see data convincingly showing that Capox is equivalent to Folfox before I'd routinely make that switch or before I would tell a patient that Capox is just as effective. And I know that the TREE2 study suggests that it might be, but that's really a randomized phase two study and not a definitive phase three trial. So until there really is convincing data that shows that KPOX is equivalent in efficacy to Folfox, I don't routinely use it. If patients, for whatever reason, don't want Folfox or there's just some mitigating reason not to give them Folfox, then I'm willing to consider it, but it would not be my first choice. 
Dan, if it's clearly a palliative situation, which this wasn't in a way, since I guess there was a consideration initially about resection, but if you're clearly talking about palliative therapy, why wouldn't we bring in capecitabine with, for example, oxaliplatin as an option? Well, I agree with Charlie. I always have to have my opening gambit with a patient, but I'm a good negotiator, and my default mode is to consider substitution of capecitabine. We do have a very large trial of Fulfox versus Zelox, and you know it all depends on how much inferiority you're willing to tolerate or non-inferiority. So it's all in the study design. I think if it comes in at a number that's close, as in the TREE trial, which was nothing more than a large phase two trial, frankly, then I think most people would be willing to say, we have these two options. Here's the pro, here's the con. One of the cons of the trial, again, is all the toxicity data that you're going to propose to the patient will come from non-U.S. patients. Therefore, you then have to make a double substitution. Then you're going to have to make up your own capecitabine regimen. And I get uncomfortable doing that, making multiple iterations, if you will, of, well, then we can change this for this and this for this. Then why do studies at all? So my opening is to say, Fulfox is my standard. But I agree with Charlie. If someone says, the, the idea of a port freaks me out, or I had an infected port, I'm not going to go through that again. I think then, yes, you're not giving no treatment. It's not a placebo. You just have to acknowledge that the data are less strong. I'm curious in terms of the practicing docs here whether you agree with that or you think we're kind of being too compulsive about trying to find evidence to support everything. I mean, for example, in this woman, Bill, as you look back on what's happened to her, how much of an advantage do you think it was for her to receive capecitabine as opposed to 5-FU? This woman's tolerated very well. She also had a dose reduction because of age, so she's done beautifully. She's had no major side effects from it. How do you approach that decision in your own practice, again, in a palliative, non-curative situation? Still, my default is full fucks. Anybody want to say differently? The other aspect of this case, Charlie, that is interesting is the question of curative surgery in an older patient in their mid-70s. Can you talk about sort of how your approach to patients off study has evolved over the last few years in terms of looking for curative situations and treating and how age fits in there? Yeah, I think the increasing amount of data suggests that we really shouldn't let age be the principal variable. We should actually let their performance status and their comorbid disease status drive our decisions about when to do surgery and or adjuvant therapy or, for that matter, deciding on what treatment to give in the metastatic setting. Because for the most part, age alone doesn't seem to be very predictive for treatment-related side effects or adverse events. So I much rather hear about their comorbid disease as well as their ECOG performance status before letting age influence my decision. So a 77-year-old person who's ECOG 0 to 1, I would treat aggressively. Can you talk about how this concept of looking for cure, the new agents we have, how that's affected how you follow up patients? Do you get more frequent scans, markers, et cetera? I was actually a fairly intense surveiller even before, because I do believe that finding things early is not always good, as the detection article in radiology tells us. But I think now, with the possibility of curing patients, even if it's only 5% more patients, multiply that times 150,000 people, and you have a fairly substantial group. And if you can enrich that by only surveying the group that are at the highest risk, which are the ones we treat adjuvantly, my feeling is is that we're going to be curing three or 4,000 more people per year, curing. And with the expense and the toxicity of treating at recurrence, what you can do up front is going to be very useful in terms of adjusted life years. I think it would come well under the $50,000 mark. So I typically follow people after their adjuvant therapy with three monthly CEAs. I disagree a bit with the ASCO guidelines to do it only up to two years, I think. 
because it didn't make sense to me to stop at the point when most people are going to start recurring. And frankly, the people that recur sooner are the ones that are going to do the worst. I would say start doing your CEAs at 24 months and do them out to five years. And even stopping at five is based on data when we only had five if you look of or surgery. There may be, in addition to curing more people with combination chemotherapy and biologics, a shifting of the peak time to relapse, which is now at 1.7 years with 5-FU and leucovorin. So Dan Sargent is now redoing his data on DFS to see how predictive it is for FLOX and FOLFOX to see whether or not we do see this shift outward. Obviously, colonoscopy is a separate issue in terms of looking at new primaries since anastomotic recurrences are rare. And I end up in most patients doing six monthly CTs of chest, abdomen, pelvis. I do a CT of the chest, not because I believe it's that much better, but it's faster and cheaper in the long run to just keep them in the machine and keep them going. And that's highly sensitive to where you practice and what your reimbursement is. And I think that's a reasonable program, although there are obviously decrements and negotiations to be made on either side. Dr. Glenn? Maybe you can comment as Charlie, since we're both in Massachusetts, but in Massachusetts they've now started profiling physicians in terms of utilization of resources and then creating categories and tiers that then get published to patients. If you are an outlier in utilization, you become tier two and your patient pays a higher copay when they walk in the office. Wow. So it's up to the patient to decide on the quality of the physician based on utilization of resources. It's very circuitous, isn't it? I actually called to say, how are you doing this? And can you give me some names of patients so I can review charts? And they said, we've done it exclusively from billing codes. Wonderful. So, you know, as you're saying this, everything makes sense in terms of following these studies. I think there's more than just reimbursement, just an insurance profiling issue. A whole new world. We were doing molecular profiling. Now we're being profiled. (laughs) I think also in fairness, though, there is a lot of utilization of scanning in all kinds of tumors. And probably some of it, maybe even a lot of it, doesn't maybe have the backing of this specific situation. Dan? I think that's very important. And going back to the PET scans and things that were done in your patient is one of the first things I got taught as a student and I teach is never get a test if you're not going to act on the outcome. And certainly when I see people using PET scans to follow people with metastatic disease, where it's not influencing their decision when to start, when to stop, what to do, just for feel-good purposes, it drives me nuts. I mean, if the CEA is going down and the CT shows they're shrinking and the PET scan looks better, what did the PET scan do to influence your decision about what to do? Nothing. All it did was tell you that you had a good response, which you already knew. In liver resection, I think it's very important. Even Medicare approves of it. Before this patient had RFA, a PET scan should be done. I wouldn't have biopsied this patient ever. So the issue of biopsies, I'm not sure why. If the pretest probability is the lady was going to have a MET, she had a MET, was removed, she had another MET. So why biopsy the second one? But if someone had a pretest probability of recurring in a place that they're likely to recur at a time they're likely to recur, and the PET has an SUV that's positive, I don't see any reason to put the patient through a biopsy. That's all you need. Bill? I very often don't biopsy colon cancer recurrent patients. I do think a little bit more carefully if the CA is not elevated. Here's a case where the CA was not elevated. The patient was totally asymptomatic. The amount of disease was really modest. All labs were normal. So in that situation, I thought of wasn't unreasonable. Also, the patient had an RFA and the lesion wasn't biopsied at that time when the surgeon was right there. So I just was trying to be a little Mm -hmm. bit careful. That's okay. As I said, my default mode is not to, but I think there's certainly reasons to. Some six years out with stage two disease, I'll probably do it more likely in that patient than someone who's 1.7 years out with seven positive nodes and five lesions. 
One other question I wanted to ask is that we've always been putting ports in, even if we're just using oxaliplatinum. If a patient doesn't want a port and you use Zelox, are you not putting a port in? Well, I think it's an issue, and I don't know what other people's experience is, but we've had a few infiltrations with oxaliplatin, and the effects are quite profound. They get sort of essentially this fairly painful, almost woody appearance to their skin that can be quite disabling for patients. And so our institutional policy is now only to give oxaliplatin through a port. Dan? We actually have some data from that on the Zelox trial. We left it up to people to decide whether to put ports in or not. 50% of people got central access, and interestingly, Jim Cassidy who's been a very strong proponent of Zelox because you don't need ports and pumps, forgot the pump problem, but the port issue with oxaliplatin is important because I asked him once, I said, well, how do you give your oxaliplatin? What proportion of your patients need central access if you're not using the pump in a portacath? And he said, well, about 50% of people, but they put Hickman catheters in to give the oxaliplatin, which seems to me to be not the best alternative. So frankly, the occasional patient, if they have great veins, will start out when we were doing Jamox before the recent data and with Falfox or a Zelox combination, will start out perhaps, but tell them the default mode is if our nurses have trouble finding veins or if you get a post-oxaliplatin arm syndrome, then you're going to get a central access and that's almost always a port. Just one last question. Did the surgeon choose to do RFA because of the patient's age rather than resect? No, I think because he said it was in the central portion of the liver was a difficult area to resect. Steve? 